You're listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Learn about local issues, meet candidates, and find out what we're doing to bring more options to Georgia voters. Hello, and welcome to the Georgia Liberty Cast, the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. My name is Ryan Graham. I'm the vice chairman of the Libertarian Party of Georgia, and I'll be your host today. Um, I'm joined today by two members of the LP Georgia Executive Committee, Laura Williams. Hey. And Smythe Duval. Hey, glad to be here. Um, some of you guys might remember Smythe because he was our 2018 candidate for Secretary of State. Um, so anyway, I think what we want to talk about today on the podcast is um, our new ballot access bill that is been it's been filed and it's with committee right now. It's HB 191 um, for this session. And um, I just want to go over kind of a high level what what changes those make, because um, we've already done a couple of podcasts on the challenges and whatnot. Um, and I, we want to just elaborate on that and talk about, you know, what what changes this is going to make. Um, basically, right now, for statewide offices, it requires one percent of active registered voters in the state to get on the ballot. Um, and for local districted races like like U.S. House, uh, like General Assembly, County Commission, things like that. It takes 5% of active registered votes. Um, so what this bill would do is move all of them to 1% of the voters who participated in the last election instead of active registered voters, which is um, a way better. Uh, we have a lot of registered voters in the state of Georgia, um, but lots of them do not participate. So it sort of seems unfair to include them in the requirement. Um, so that requirement, so it moves the 1% to not just be statewide, but all offices. It also caps the requirement at 200 signatures, making it a lot easier for independents, especially who don't have a pathway to full ballot access to get on the ballot. Um, right now the bill has, uh, what I'm calling panpartisan support because I don't like the word bipartisan. <laughs> um, approved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two votes. <laughs> Uh, we have three Democratic sponsors. That's Representative Darshan Kendrick, Representative Valencia Stovall, and Representative Vernon Jones. We also have three Republican sponsors, and that is Representatives David Stover, Colton Moore, and Matt Gertler. Um, we have support from the Green Party. They've been up there actively lobbying uh, since we before we got it filed. The Constitution Party is on board now. We have independents across the state of Georgia. Uh, specifically representatives from a group called Unite Atlanta, which if you haven't heard of them, um, check them out. But what they do is they provide support for independent candidates, regardless of platform or anything like that. But they were, you know, they give all kinds of information. So, um, and then of course us, the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Um, so right now it's in the, it's been assigned to a committee. The committee is the Governmental Affairs Committee. Um, chairman, the chairman of that committee is Ed Reinders. And he essentially is, has been threatening to not even hold a hearing for the bill, uh, without giving too many reasons about that. Um, so what we need from you guys, I'm gonna, I wanna say this at the top of the podcast so you don't even have to listen through it to, to know what we really need from you, is to contact Ed Reinders and tell him that you support HB 191, regardless of your political affiliation, because it's the right thing to do. And so uh, I want to give his phone number is 404-656-6801. That's his office published phone number. So it's, I'm not doing anything weird here. And his email is erinders, which is E-R-Y-N-D-E-R-S at bellsouth.net. A little weird. He's using a BellSouth email. Still. <laughs> Still and a fish in an official capacity as a representative. Yeah, he's locked out of. Like Yahoo and Hotmail. <laughs> so, um, so that, that's just the top. I wanted to give a, a brief overview of it. And then I kind of want to get into more details on why ballot access is so important in Georgia and why it's so bad. So, uh, I want to give it to Smythe a little bit and see, you know, <clears throat> why, why does ballot access matter to us? You know, that was an excellent, um, summary of the bill that we have in front of us now. So thanks so much for that. So why is ballot access so important? Well, uh, think about it this way. Uh, right now in the state of Georgia, we do not have much political competition, and that's a huge problem. And we're going to actually talk to you guys about um, how bad competition is in the state of Georgia. And this is a big reason to uh, want to improve the ballot access laws. 
when it comes to uh, November, when people go to vote, and you will notice when you are actually in the voting booth, there are times in which there are so many different races in which there's only one person to choose from. There's only one person to choose from in that race, and they're essentially unopposed in November. And in the state of Georgia, Georgia is one of the worst in the entire nation when it comes to um, competitive races. Uh, and uh, in 2016, approximately 80 uh, percent um, ran unopposed. That is in the state, Georgia State House. Um, they got to the November election and eight out of 10 uh, of those uh, Georgia State House races, there was no opposition whatsoever. So why is ballot access important to you? Um, the, you know, the folks of Georgia, we need political competition. That is plain and simple. We need political competition. We need more people to, um, to be running. We need more people to actually doing stuff. So that is a huge thing. Um, you know, this is an excellent uh, segue because we're talking about actually wanting to go lobby down at the state house, but how are we going to be effectively lobbying anybody if they're not going to actually face any competition coming up, coming up soon? Well, let's go ahead and have, what do you think of that, Laura? I mean, if we're not going, if how are we going to actually do that? It's the same problem we face with term limits. The people who need to act in order for that to happen are not going to act against their own best interest, right? The job of any sitting politician is to get elected and then get reelected. There is no room for public service in that, especially the kind of service that would give Georgia voters more choices on their ballot and, yes, limit uh, their chances of winning. But with good reason, in order to get more representative candidates to appear on the ballot, because we need uh, a third or fourth or fifth option in order for the majority of Georgia opinions to be represented. Well, not only that, one of the things that I was really big in my campaign was pointing out the impact that the lack of competition had on the local communities. If you don't have competitors to incumbents, if the, if the incumbents are running unopposed, then what point is there in each having a campaign? What point is there in news reporters actually covering the campaign? What point is there in which there, you know, if there's no debate of the local issues in that particular district? That's what happens to the local community. Politics dies. One of the stories that I used to share on the campaign trail is that my two sons, both of them teenagers, they did not know that we actually had local races yeah, and, and they're in Cobb County. They did not know we had local races. They were only familiar with uh, the presidential and a couple of Senate races. Because we largely and don't. Because we largely don't. Exactly. They're not competitive elections. They right. are recurring appointments. Yeah. yeah. The tenure that some of these folks have served, 20 and 30 years, is just evidence that there haven't been any real choices available because Atlanta has changed so much in 20 or 30 years that it doesn't even make sense that we would have the same representatives <clears throat> as the population changes so fast. Mm -hmm. Well, and to continue uh, with that, if, if you don't have competitive elections for 20 or 30 years, if you don't have any culture of elections in that district, if you don't have people getting together for, you know, phone-a-thons or barbecues or doing the kinds of things that would actually bring people out, like campaigns to join, you know, that was one of the one, one of the most fun parts of my campaign was actually people were able to join my campaign. They were able to get involved. If you do not have a competitive race, it's going to impact that community. And now we have uh, generations of Americans that are being raised without any local competition whatsoever. And that's going to impact uh, the ability to have representative government. And that's certainly one of the things as libertarians, you know, we, we are stand for. We, we're pushing for competitive, fair and secure elections in this state. That's another piece about competition. Um, just going off of that. A lot of times people will say, well, you just need to vote for, you know, you just vote against the guy that you're, you're against for whatever reason, if you don't like the job he's doing. Well, in Georgia, a lot of times you can't, but even if you can, what you're, if you're a Republican, 
you're then expected to vote for a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat, you're then expected to vote for a Republican. If you don't happen to like your Democrat or Republican, mm. and that to a lot of people is not something they're willing to do, but they may, you know, a Democrat may be willing to vote for a Green Party candidate who's on the ballot, and a Republican may be willing to vote for a Libertarian, or, you know, Democrat might vote Libertarian, whatever. It, it provides another option somewhere in the middle that mm. isn't so extreme. Um, and right now, they, we just don't have that option. And when you divide into team blue and team red and you feel like you have to choose a side and the other guy is essentially evil and you have to, the politics of fear that informs our political discourse really discourages people from finding out about the issues. And if you have three or four or five choices on a ballot, you are more tempted to say, I am fed up with both major parties. I wonder what these guys are about. Not what should I join next, but what makes them green or what makes them gold or are libertarians as scary as I've heard? And to go investigate what we actually believe and would do in communities, which brings the conversation about representation back down to street level, because these people haven't had to walk street level in decades. As Smythe said, they're not going door to door trying to secure enough signatures to get on the ballot for their own re-election. I don't know that that's how I want them spending their time. But since the barriers have been set artificially low for two major parties, it's just transparently political favoritism to allow two parties to qualify independently or automatically and one to laboriously try to collect enough physical documents. We haven't talked so much about the process of getting on the ballot and how intensive it is to go and secure signatures and have them notarized and validated. And then you have to submit them to an office that has a, an incumbent in it and a high incentive to throw out your petition, if at all possible. I think we will talk about that next, but one thing that I also wanted to get out there um, is if you know many of you probably know I also ran for a statewide office last uh, last cycle I ran for public service commission and one of the biggest criticisms that I would hear on the campaign trail is why are you starting at a statewide office and I'm sure Smythe can attest to that yes. that one too we heard that all the time um, well, we need to go to the local <clears throat> level this needs to be ground up yeah run in your community don't try to run for a state office. So here's here's the funny thing is the Libertarian Party of Georgia is actually the only other party besides the Republicans and Democrats who already have statewide access. So back in the 90s, somebody went out and got all 50,000 signatures uh, needed to get on the ballot. And we we sort of snuck in on a um, it was a special election and we have maintained our ballot access ever since. But you have to get your foot in the door with that crazy like 50,000 signature requirement. And what we want to do is to what I call building the bench. We want to start running people locally and we just can't. The laws are put in place to make that harder for us. So we can only run statewide candidates. And when we try to run local races, it takes a lot of our resources and frankly, too many of our resources where to, to not just to get on the ballot, not even to campaign. That's actually a very important point. And one of the things that we people really should understand. So this is by design. And when I say by design, it is they, they make it possible that we can run a statewide race. And yet, if you think about it, statewide races are really, really expensive. And we haven't had the, you know, a way of training uh, candidates or for that matter, the people that work with candidates at, at a local level. And yet, if we want to work at the local level, if we want to run for a state house or a state senate, we spend all of our um, resources trying to get on the ballot, uh, and that is you know, a petition, a signature petition drive. And when, you, when you're using all your money and all your volunteer time to actually do that much, you're not raising money for a campaign. You're not getting your message out there. You're just trying to get on the ballot. And We're treading water for the first risk. six months of the two major parties' campaigns. Yes, and that's by design. This is something that um, the two major parties um, have have done to make sure that uh, you know independents and third parties like the Libertarian Party cannot get their message out. Can we think a little bit about the history? Because it 
we have a tendency to frame it, of course, as exclusionary to libertarians. But of course, it's exclusionary to everyone who isn't identified and approved by the old boys club in the Democrat and Republican parties within the state of Georgia. The amount of resources that it takes to run a statewide campaign in a state with how many counties? 159. Too many? Too many. And it's too big to drive independently every weekend, try to turn up at events. And it's, it is yeah. impossible, even with the best intentions, because all the money that exists is being spent on filing fees, increasingly on lawyers, which we'll get to shortly, on the out-of-state firms. So you can hire folks who are great at canvassing and the... <clears throat> Per sig, that's, you pay per signature, not per valid signature, which means you could pay almost twice as much. Yeah. To get bad information, it's about three dollars in that uh, signature. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Fifty thousand signatures at three dollars a signature minimum. And, and you really need to double that because your validity rate goes down because they have to be active, valid signatures. So that's, voters, voters. Yes. Registered, registered voters, voters. Yeah. within the right district. So if you're running a house race and the major grocery store where you would otherwise canvas happens to be a zip code over, you might have a hit or miss rate with anyone who comes by. Right. And they won't know necessarily what district they're in. You can't just go to your local mall and collect signatures because yeah, right. you're not going to show them a map and... It's not you know, green go through the whole, It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I would love to stand on a corner, on a crowded corner, and start collecting signatures, <clears> but we can't do that. We have to go get lists from the Secretary of State and use their data to create walking lists to charge. go door to door. Yeah, they charge us for that. The data sucks. Pardon my language there, I guess, but the data sucks. We all know that. It's been in the AJC constantly for the last six months. Um, and Yeah, so, registered voter data is... Subject to all of the chicanery that surrounded the governor's election here, in which votes were lost and voting blocks yeah. were closed early and things turned up later. It, yeah. it was a mess. And all of the clearing of roles or purging of names that happens. So basically, it's a little bit of a game. And that is, is that we can go out and collect all these uh, quote unquote signatures, but with uh, the secretary of state, um, it's really the county at the county level, um, the board of elections, they have the option of checking the signatures and striking out anything that's quote unquote not valid. And that's why when Ryan was talking about the validity rate, um, yeah, you might collect 50,000 signatures, but then only 30,000 of them are good. So to make sure that you or reach are validated by people who have an incentive not to validate them. Right. It's, it's important to draw the distinction between the quality of the signatures and the approval rate, because we know that from other factors of voter registration that they use single errors to strike people who... Any reason they can. And the county election boards, it is worth noting, are all appointed by Republicans and Democrats. Right. It's an appointed position by party, not by the state. Right. Parties being, and we so often forget this, a private corporation that is (laughs) running people in public races. Yep. Yep. Um, I was thinking about that when you're talking about your boys, Smythe, and... They know more about the state races and president, of course, because that's what's in the news, but also. Yeah, you know, they know about it because, uh, you know, that's that's what they hear. And it wasn't until uh, they learned about the local races with the the sixth district handle versus Ossoff. And that was the first time that they realized that there were local races. And this these guys were in high school. Yeah, they should be out canvassing door-to-door for a candidate they're crazy about. That's what that age is for. But they have also been through enough years of public school to know that, quote, it's a two-party system. That's what we have in America, as though it's written into the Constitution instead of specifically warned about. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, there is uh, a huge need um, in terms of just raising the next generation uh, and being able to, you know, to have... Uh, a political culture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
ballot access equality. And that's, um, and that's, uh, you'll hear people talk about ballot access. You'll hear people talk about ballot access equality. Equality just means that, you know, all, all uh, the candidates are able to get on the ballot using the same set of standards, the same set of things. And by introducing this bill that Ryan's referring to, and what was the number again? 191. 191. HB191. HB191. And by introducing this bill, what this is going to accomplish is it's going to lower the requirements necessary to be able to get on the ballot if you're a libertarian, if you're a green, if you're independent. It lowers that requirement significantly. We're talking instead of thousands of signatures uh, to get on the ballot, it would take 200. And that's a big, big difference. We could, it is a reasonable number to actually go out and get 200 signatures. I mean, 400, because they won't validate half of them. That's a good point. That's a really good point. But let's get into the specifics there and not just say thousands. So for U.S. House, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, we are talking about 20,000 valid signatures necessary. So that means we're talking about 40,000 signatures gathered to ensure that you can actually make it on the ballot. And that's the current law. That's, that's the one that we're trying to replace. That's the current law that we're trying to replace. So they, they put that law in place in the 1940s, and absolutely no candidate has done it uh, without – there was one. Cynthia McKinney's father actually did it as an independent um, in a special election scenario, but that's the only time it's ever happened, and it was before they even bothered validating signatures. Um, so he, he had – he, all he had to get was the number of signatures and he got on, but now they've started validating them. So it's, it's even worse. Um, and for state house, you need about 2000 signatures. So that is about 4,000. Um, but if you take a look at, if you're thinking about in dollars, that is $6,000 at $3 a signature or 12,000 because that's how many valid signatures you need. Um, a lot of state house races in Georgia, if you go look at any of these, um, campaign finance reports, they, they might raise $10,000 for their whole campaign. Uh, but we have to raise the 10000 to run the campaign, but also the 12000 to get on the ballot in the first place if you're paying for it. So those are the sorts of barriers that we're looking at um, as far as local races. County commissions, you might get a little smaller. Um, and then and then Senate is a little higher. Uh, we just, as the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party of Georgia, we, we kind of want to focus on the state house. That's why all my data usually comes from there. Um, so we to talk specifically about races that we have tried, um, in 2018, we had uh, two candidates attempt to collect signatures to get on the ballot for state house. Uh, that was Jay Strickland in House District 42 and Damon Kennedy in House District 90. Jay Strickland needed 1,200 signatures. It was way lower than the average. Um, so we went out there, we busted our butts, we had lots of volunteers, we had some professionals on our staff too, and we gathered about 1,600 signatures. Um, they only deemed 900 of them valid. So he was not able to make it on the ballot, even though he got 400 more signatures than required. Uh, in his district, the Democrat went on to win because she was unopposed, and she was also unopposed in her primary. So those voters did not get a choice because Jay Strickland uh, didn't get 1,200 valid signatures. Um, and then Damon Kennedy was unable to collect enough signatures at all due to um, a, a plethora of issues. Honestly, we had the same um, kind of team around him. We had volunteers in place. We had some professionals in place. Um, when I went door to door for him, I collected about three signatures an hour. No, one signature an hour. Sorry, it was three signatures <clears throat> over the course of three hours. That's why I got a little confused there. Um, but that's actually a great point. <laughs> This is a great point, and a lot of people don't realize that when you're trying to collect signatures for for a ballot access, you're having to have a conversation oh, for yes. every single signature. Yep. Because uh, you're what you're doing is you're presenting this government form in which you're asking for someone to uh, print their name, their address, you know, give a signature, so on and so forth. Name, address, birth date, and county. Right. You have, you, and you're, and to thing a stranger is, at the door. To a stranger. And yeah. the thing is, is okay, wait a second. Uh, this looks kind of official. What is it that you're actually asking me to do? Yep. And can I still vote for the candidate I like, even if I sign this? Yes. Yeah. So, yes, it's not an election, but we shouldn't be the ones doing that civics lesson door to door. Which is another reason we can't campaign, because if we're out there explaining our policies at this time, then we're not going to get the signatures. That I mean, like, it, it's just 
the way it is. Right. If, if you want to talk about what a libertarian is and right. what they believe, you are not going to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. So when we you were need saying, to yeah. to have the conversation about what ballot access is, why we need this information, we wish it weren't this way too. But here's what it means. Right. At every door, right. we never have we never stand a chance to actually talk about what we believe enough to have anyone be interested or agree with us. And they even if they remember and retain our names, they're unlikely to see them on their ballot. Right. Well, and uh, to your point, when you were saying that you collected one signature an hour, and, I mean, I, that was my experience. I, I, would, I would really hustle. But because you get each and every conversation that you have, it just takes time. And then you go to the next house and that person might not be home. And then you go to the next house and they're not interested. And then you go to the next house and then you have, you know, wait a second, what am I signing here? I mean, it takes an incredible amount of effort. Um, and even with a team of people out there, you'll, uh, you know, it, you might gather, I think with the team that we were with that day that I was out there, 20 or 30, um, signatures, but then you have the validity checks on top of that. And whether they are actually ballot, you know, registered to vote in the state of Georgia, whether or whether you know, they can quote unquote find them on the voter rolls, and we know the how that goes. Accurate. So as you can see, um, when we're talking about uh, you know for uh, state house, um, Jay Strickland was twelve hundred signatures, but we need really needed two thousand. That's two thousand conversations that you have to have to get those signatures, and that takes a lot of time. A lot of manpower. And one of the things that really want everyone to hear is, is that when you're actually doing this, you don't have time to do anything else. You can't raise money. You can't get out and be talking about your, your issues or doing those kinds of things. You're all about trying to get those signatures. You wear your volunteers out. I mean, you completely mm -hmm. wear them out just trying to get on the ballot. By the time if you actually get on the ballot, which isn't likely, which is not likely then you're, you know, the, you're starting from scratch. You've burned uh, the, out your best. You've burned out your best. You're starting from scratch. You're just, just then getting to the point where you can actually start raising money for a campaign. And your opponent has been doing that. They've been yeah. speaking to groups. They've yeah. been going door to door to talk about issues. They've been mass printing yard signs and That's paying right. people to take them all over the state and really just back country roads that you never thought anybody would bother to plant a sign on right there. There'll be three or four different major party candidates with name recognition for months yeah. and months. And now, of and course, months. the thing that is really aggravating about this is that you have people it's like, well, why didn't you guys start at the local level? Yeah. Why are you guys not, you know, why are you guys not, not getting anything, uh, you know, you're starting with the yeah. state Senate or you're starting with the secretary of state. Why aren't you starting at the local level? Well, this is it. But the thing this is, is, is that you, you don't, you don't hear how hard it is, how difficult the two parties have made it mm -hmm. for anybody like us to run. I mean, I so can I tell you personally that this is why I didn't run for state house in 2018. Why I chose public service commission instead. Cause I, the signatures were too much. I haven't, you know, I had a newborn at the time and, it's like it, I wasn't going to be able to handle the that. state party already had access for the statewide race. You could agree to run, be nominated and run. Right. So bring you did not have to try to get on the ballot. And I could learn how to campaign. And yes. I could help those down ballot people. I still went door to door for them and campaigned for myself at the same time. But and it turned out to be an in insanely expensive race for public service commission. That's true. Like, more than some Senate races in other states. Were My Democratic the... opponent raised $1.6 million by the end of it, which is insane money. Yeah, it's, it's an From incredible amount of money. Primarily, well, that well, was your... Lady Your Miller was out, out of state donors, but, um, but then that my, doesn't bother me. my, yeah, it didn't bother <laughs> me as much either, but my re Republican opponent, Chuck Eaton, who is the incumbent, um, he had about a million dollars spent for him in the runoff, uh, in dark money. And then he also raised about 500 to $600,000 primarily from people he was meant to regulate. So fun mm -hmm. stuff. But I, I raised about $6,000 trying to work my butt off, uh, raising money kind of grassroots level. And, uh, you know, still cause a runoff. So I consider that a win. Yeah. It was a win. <laughs> it was, it was absolutely I'd, I'd win. rather win at the local level though. Right. Like, yes. Win, win. Vote right. Not win. Right. You could talk to enough people to make a difference yep. if you were allowed to run 
as easily yeah. as the yeah. other. Yeah, if I could two run, in, if I could run in my own uh, own district and you know, my own state house district, I could actually be building relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, where I live. And uh, that that race might go unchallenged. Yes. If you don't raise huge. enough signatures, it's not automatically a two-way race instead of a three-way race. In many cases, we are excluded from races where that means there isn't a vote. Yeah, that's actually that's what happened in um, Jay Strickland uh, in the race that right. the incumbent. Yeah. Uh, the voters there did not have any any uh, option to choose from other than the incumbent. So one um, party on a ballot. Yeah. That's not, that's not uh, democracy. No, that's not democracy. That's not representative government at all. So as a party, I think we try to attack this issue on three different levels. The first level is going to be this HB 191 and affecting it legislatively. And then the second prong of attack is uh, a lawsuit that we actually have ongoing uh, we are suing basically on behalf of U.S. House requirements, saying that it's unconstitutional. Um, we're suing the Secretary of State. That was Kemp before, but now it's Raffensperger. Um, it Essentially, our grounds are... So there was a court case with the Green Party and the Constitution Party a few years ago, and they got the presidential vote number taken down from the, 60, uh, from the 1% of registered voters to 7,500 is the max that, that it takes to get up on the ballot as a president. Let me restate that. So it used to take approximately 50,000 signatures requirement. Well, we have 6.5 million registered voters, yeah. so it'd be about 65,000. 65,000. Because Stacey Abrams yes. registered a ton of people. Yes. So, and, and, yes. So that <laughs> and was, we now have to go have that conversation with all of them, which yes. we're more than willing to do, but <laughs> we need more time. Yeah. But to say Ryan's point, the, for the president only, it used to be approximately 65,000 signatures. Um, the Green Party and the Constitution Party uh, filed this lawsuit in 2012. They finally won it in 2016, won again on appeal in 2017, knocked that number down. Okay, uh, Judge Richard Story found it unconstitutional, says that 65,000 signatures is completely unconstitutional. The new number is 7,500 for president. Now, here's the weird thing. Right now in the state of Georgia, today in the state of Georgia, you can get the president onto the Georgia ballot with, uh, you know, the 7,500 is the legal requirement. All right. However, for Congress, it still requires 5% of that district or approximately 20,100 signatures. You know, uh, that, you know, that's about right. 20,100 signatures. It actually requires more signatures to get a member uh, a candidate in a congressional district than for the president of the United States. This is how messed up it, it, ballot access is in the state yeah, of Georgia. It's not uncommon for yes. there to be a higher signature requirement than there would be votes cast in that district. That has actually happened in midterm elections. Yes, in midterm <laughs> elections, you've yep. actually had cases in which the signature requirement uh, is, is more than the number of voters that have turned out during that midterm election. Uh, last year. Yeah. Martin Cowan is uh, a, a plaintiff on the case, and he, in his race, his opponent, the Democrat in that race, uh, qualified with fewer votes than he needed signatures. That definitely happened. Yeah, it's insane. It, and that's insane. insane. Uh, that, is, that is absolutely insane. So Martin Cowan's case uh, is building off of the, the 2016 victory, um, and uh, that case is in the court, winding its way through the courts now. And uh, I've learned this evening that uh, hopefully we're going to hear, hear something, um, a resolution in that case sometime this year. It, it should be this year. Um, the, the judge is apparently getting pretty antsy because it's been dragging on for the better part of a year now. And the Secretary of State's office is now collecting depositions from everybody. And we sort of expect the judge to just kind of uh, make a ruling without doing the whole huge court thing. Just take all the depositions and then... Uh, make a ruling based on that. So do you uh, do you guys have if if the ruling uh, goes our way, do you guys have any predictions what the what might happen? It needs to be fewer than 7500 signatures. And we know that's the ceiling. I, yeah, yeah. I think it'll um, and and what Martin has told me is that he thinks it'll be less than 1000. But if, and that's because of the reduction. If if it's a fair reduction from what the president was taken, mm-hmm. and if they make the reduction the same amount, then it would be fewer than a thousand so, required. 
All right. So if it, here's the other thing. I'm thinking if it, if it get completely goes our way, it's going to impact all the offices um, in the state. That is not just, I mean, Barton Cowan suit is uh, specifically for Congress. Yes, right. right. Now, if it doesn't, uh, I, I think it would be, it's going to be really strange if um, that does not go forward that if we lose that case, but I mean, it could happen. It just depends on the judge, but it now it seems so clear cut when right. you look at the fact that it's never been met, yes. right? We've never had someone clear the hurdle since it was erected to prevent the communists from making it onto the well, ballot. It's also the that Rick, I mean, Rick, uh, judge story said, you know, it is unconstitutional for what y'all have done off so, so far, but here me being cynical for just a moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. I could, I could see that the, that what could happen here is the judge makes a very narrow ruling in this case and say, okay, you know what, um, we'll, uh, imp- we'll change the requirement for Congress only, but won't change the requirement for state house, state senate, or anything else. And then you just have to have a whole another lawsuit, a whole another thing. That's the that's the cynical side of me coming out. What I'm hoping happens is that 7,500 is the ceiling. And as soon as they start looking at state races like congressional, it's going to apply to all uh, state races. And that's what I'm hoping that we get. It all depends on, on what kind of reasoning you know, you know, that, that the judge actually comes up with. That's best case scenario. But um, as you know, with your involvement in Georgia judges, uh, they don't always do what makes sense because uh, there is a partisan aspect in that. There always is. Well, there is a partisan aspect, and we come to find out that Brian Kemp was not our friend in this uh, um, during these uh, cases uh, back he, in 2017. He chooses to fight it. He, choo- he, he, he chooses doesn't have to fight to. it. You talk to him in person, and he'll tell you, oh, yeah, you know, this is, you know, ballot access is a great thing. But what he his actions are completely different. That's right. And uh, in and April. And he's using public money oh, yeah. to wage yeah. these right. battles against. A, a second the, the, or third yes. option appearing on a ballot under one of his party members. The legal costs are absurd, but uh, in when he uh, uh, he was Secretary of State and he appealed the uh, the court case, uh, the one uh, the constitutional and the Green Party brought. He appealed it, and the uh, in the uh, questionnaire uh, of the appeal, he stated that the reason that Georgia must have these stringent ballot access laws was to prevent or reduce the cost of runoff elections in this state. That was the reason. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We were costing them too much. We were costing, yes, exactly. Uh, and they were to avoid runoff elections. And that is the type of partisan, that is the type of reasoning mm-hmm. that we're, when we're talking about just people being hostile to what we're talking about, they were using uh, that as a, a, a way of actually reducing competition. Well, and they don't talk about the cost of runoffs during their own primaries, which mm-hmm. have runoffs all the time, or during special elections, which are typically it's everyone, it's a free-for-all, and they have runoffs all the time, too. Yep. And we pay the cost of their primaries. And of a private organization, as you mentioned. Yes. The private corporation uses public but- buildings, public <laughs> funds, public access to hold elections that we hold privately. Well, yes, they do that. And, but the best excuse, and we will, I bet you we're going to hear this this year. The best excuse is we don't want to overcrowd the ballot. And that's, I just, it just makes you cringe because I bet you somebody in the AGC is going to actually reprint that lie all over again. If you guys remember, um, that sixth district. Okay. That was uh, the handle loss off. A couple of years ago, but there were what seventeen Republicans running on that in that primary right. that year. That was two thousand sixteen. And nobody complained about. And that. nobody complained about overcrowding the ballot that year. So there we go. That is just, it is a overcrowding the ballot is just a very easy soundbite for them to use. Right. There's nothing to it. But you will, I, I bet you we're going to hear that. Overcrowd the ballot with people who aren't me. Yeah. That, that, or yes. my team. Well, and yeah. the other thing is, is as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, it, it's 60 to 80% of General Assembly are not 
are uncontested. So are we going to overcrowd the ballot, or are we going to provide a second choice for most people? Well, that's, yeah. That's, that's yeah. you know, we actually or provide more, choices. a majority of races and a majority of right. residents of Georgia right. were in districts with uncontested races where they didn't even have two choices. Right. And that is not, by the way, perhaps we should <clears throat> explain that the two major parties are each entitled to run a candidate. They ha- They f- don't face these barriers to ballot access that the libertarians and third parties and independents face. However, they've successfully divided up the state between the two parties so that they only have to spend resources in a limited number of quote unquote swing counties mm-hmm. that, and seats that can be expected to change hands. It makes sense for the two of them to collude, you know, Comcast and Time Warner style to divide up the voters so that they can conserve resources as a private corporation. Right. I, I, I see what you're, where you're getting at. Uh, and uh, this is one of those places in which, I mean, you can really dive into the rabbit hole in terms of how you, uh, how the Republicans and Democrats have over decades, over many, many decades now have made sure that they kind of control the outcome. Um, and one to your point, Certainly, they like to appear like they are hostile to each other, but oh, in a no. lot of ways, they are working on the same, working on the same team. And they they use the issues to make sure that we we stay divided. Ballot access, uh, you know, a lot of we're, we've been talking about uh, what was this Ed Reinders uh, yep. and the Republicans. The Republicans certainly have not helped at all in the uh, since they've been in power since two thousand two. They have not helped get anything passed, even though they have indicated that they were you know, interested in working with us. There have also, been multiple bills, multiple the bills throughout the years. The Republicans have not um, helped us get those bills out of committee. But I want to point out that when the Democrats were in power, they didn't help either. This, these ballot right, because access, because when they're in power, no, no they, know, they, they don't, they're not interested. They're and just, incumbents don't change no. as the, as the parties in control switch, even when the leaning of a chamber changes, the vast majority are the same candidates, the incumbents who are all old friends and have all been in their seats for 20 years, conspiring to exclude everyone else from the decisions that will impact them in their communities. Yeah. So we talked about the three-prong attack, and the first prong being legislative changes, the second prong being a lawsuit, and then the third prong would be to just get enough support to overcome these requirements. And it's going to be to get a foothold. It'll be in a few districts at one point, and then maybe we can grow from there. But that is going to be the hardest way. But what you guys can do is go to lpgeorgia.com. That's L-P-G-E-O-R-G-I-A.com. And sign up there and say you're willing to volunteer, you're willing to canvas, and we'll, and we'll reach out to you when it's time to get uh, collect signatures because we're going to need boots on the ground. And that's, that's pure and simple. We just need as many warm bodies as possible collecting signatures to be able to overcome that. Um, so we need your help. As far as the legislative changes go, um, like I, I want to mention it again, um, it's in committee. It has currently been indicated to us that it may be being blocked from even hearing, uh, having a hearing by one man, Ed Reinders. He's able to unilaterally make that decision. So what we need from you guys today, not only to sign up to Canvas, but to contact Ed Reinders' office. This week. This week. I mean, now, right? You send him an email as soon as you hear this. Um, you can also reach out to Speaker David Ralston because Ed Reinders will do what Speaker Ralston tells him to. <laughs> so if you can give Ralston pressure as well, then it'll go. Um, we just need leadership to move this thing along. And right now they're indicating that they're not willing to. But if they get pressure from constituents, they will. Do you they have will um, do it. you have Ed's uh, phone number and uh, the, office number? The, Ed's phone number, again, is 404-656-6801. And his email is erinders, that is E-R-Y-N-D-E-R-S, at bellsouth.net. 
And when you're actually contacting him, whether it's via the telephone or via email, or for that matter, come on down to the Capitol, um, you're going to be advocating for the ballot access bill. And what is that number? HB 191. So HB 191. And what you would say is, uh, you know, Representative Winder, uh, Rinder? Yeah, Representative Rinders. Rinder. You know, we uh, really want you to support this bill. We, we, we would like to have more choices, more competition on Georgia's ballot. You know, and the thing is, is that you can say we we have had many races in our district in which we just don't have any choices and the people don't represent us. And one of the things I will tell you is that whether you're doing email or whether you're doing on the phone, always be professional, be respectful about it. That's right. But just make your case. Make the case of why you uh, do it. Not only contact Rinders, but t- contact your own representative. And that's very important because uh, the more people, more representatives that hear about this, they're going to talk to the uh, the governmental affairs committee. They're going to start uh, finding out more about it. But it really does make a huge difference for you guys out in, in rural Georgia to be contacting your state representative, your state senator, and let them hear about HB 191. It really, uh, the ballot access bill, HB 191, it really makes a huge difference to have constituents call and let them know about it. Feel free to print off our press release and read from it as talking points. You don't have to know the issue inside out. You won't be explaining it to your representative. They are going to make notes or you're going to speak to a staffer who's going to make notes about what you called about, what the bill number was, and how you felt about it, and then a notation of whether you are a district constituent or not. Yeah. And that's, that, that is how they prioritize the legislative calendar. If you want to make more of a splash with less effort, call district offices. There's, they're desperately understaffed while the assembly is in session, and so three or four phone calls is going to send some intern staffing the phone into a tizzy, and it's going to become topic of conversation at a staff meeting that week. It really you can really yes. just a few people. Yes. It really makes a big difference. It really does. If even a few people are calling about the same bill, it means that they as far as they know, we're that you know like wow, this is really picking up. And that and it makes a huge difference. So definitely give you know pick up the phone, email, um, and HB one ninety one ballot access equality bill. Ask your friends and relatives who aren't libertarian or don't identify with everything that you do or you don't see eye to eye with, if they agree that there should be more choices on the ballot and fewer incumbents should run unopposed, they should call Ed Rinders also. Feel free to provide them that information and phone number and say, if you're a constitutionalist, if you're uh, a, a green, if you're a member of any smaller than statewide group and you might want to field a candidate for a position where you think your ideas could really make a difference, you will not be able to, no matter how much you want to. We are just the marginal case that is having to prove the rule, but it's only because everybody who has different issues can be empowered by our victory, even if you'll be annoyed to see a libertarian on the ballot (laughs) <laughs> and you know, all kinds of people, but even if you're a Republican or a Democrat who just believes in fair and competitive elections, yeah, if no. you'd like to be able to support vote, the bill, if no. you'd like to be able right. to vote against the incumbent ever, <laughs> yeah. well, independence. <laughs> let's, let's just bring independence. Independence benefit. You know that forty four percent of Georgians don't identify with, with a either political party. party. Yes. Yeah. So yes, that would be it. Would benefit bring bringing competition is going to be one of the first and most elementary steps. If you have no idea how to fix our political system in the United States today. Okay. If you have no clue what to do, cause there is, it's so confusing or paralyzing or, or paralyzing. I think it's hopeless. The best that place to start is all the things that you can do to bring about political competition <clears throat> and ballot access equality is one of them. So, you know, this has been great. I, I really appreciate y'all inviting me to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, I think it's time to wrap this thing up, but uh, I was wondering if, uh, Laura, do you have any kind of, Last thoughts on this or sort of a call to action, if you will. Well, we, we've done the call we've to action. Call to action. Anything, you want to give that phone number any, again? Anything, no, they've got it. Anything we've missed that you feel is important or 
And Smythe, I'm going to ask you next so you, you get ready. There's been a lot of conversation in Georgia this year about who gets to vote and whose vote is recognized and who's a registered voter and who can be excluded. I think it's important to remember that the ability to vote is only half of the civil right that enfranchisement is meant to be. You get the right to elect someone who represents your ideas and your views. You don't just get to go in and check a box for which there is no other option. That's not the right to representation. That might be the right to vote in Georgia, but that is a travesty and an embarrassment for a state like ours with this history of voter suppression and statewide corruption to be allowing this to continue. Again, you don't have to agree with us. You don't have to want a particular third choice. You just have to want choice. That was great. Uh, yeah. Smythe, do you have anything extra to add? You know, I think really uh, more than anything, uh, the, when it comes to why this is important to all of you out there, it really comes down to uh, having any kind of effectiveness in the laws that get passed in the state. And if you have competition, if you have meaningful elections at election time, that is, is that an incumbent can possibly lose, then they're going to be much more apt to listen to what the people have to say. But we're looking at you, Representative Reinders. <laughs> yes, exactly. No fear of being challenged, and so no interest in what constituents. And that want. is that's really the crux of the issue. If we're going to continue in this country as representational democracy, okay, we have to get to a place in which we're, we have competition. We really need that to move this along, and that's that's really what this is about. It's just about basic you know, basic competition at the ballot box. Great. Um, so I think that's it. We're going to wrap this thing up. Um, this has been Laura Williams, Smythe Duval, and Ryan Graham. We're leaders at the Libertarian Party of Georgia on the executive committee. And um, this has been the Georgia Liberty Cast. You've been listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. The theme song for this episode was Metaltania by Kevin MacLeod, released to the public domain through freepd.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. You can email the show's producers at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. If you're a libertarian in the state of Georgia, don't forget to find your local affiliate at lpgeorgia.com.